0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
0: It's such an honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees. And...
3: The Oscar goes to...
0: And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me! I'm
4: the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
1: I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. This is a topic we're not talking about this week, but it's the week before Can. Uh, Richard and Rebecca are heading off. Uh, next time you hear from them uh, on this show, basically, they will be on the cross set. So exciting times. Uh, we'll have lots to talk about. Uh, but in the meantime, there is news. There are Tony nominations. There is uh, Top Gun, which will be a Can, and still more television, much of it dealing with murder Including we're going to revisit um, one of the shows we talked about last week, The Staircase, maybe true to the spirit of The Staircase of going back and revisiting something over and over again. (laughs) Um, But we'll get there. So first, on the um, the day that we're recording this on Tuesday, the newest news we want to discuss is that Netflix may well be adding ads by the end of this year, something that for a long time they said they would never ever do, but something that started to seem kind of inevitable after the very well-publicized stock dip they've been enduring in the last few weeks. Um, David, you suggested us talking about this. I'm hoping that means you have a take on what this all means.
5: I'm just curious what filmmakers uh, inside Netflix are how they're feeling about this. Obviously, Netflix will not be the only streamer with an ad-supported tier, but certainly the combination of the amount of Oscar contenders that they develop and the kinds of filmmakers they invest in puts them in a kind of unique, perhaps shaky standing on this issue. You know, there are directors who have decided, perhaps a little reluctantly, given the controversies around streaming and the Oscar race, to migrate to Netflix, to make their movies, not (laughs) under the understanding that... Uh, A good chunk of people on the service would watch them potentially with ads, ad breaks between them. So I'm just curious how they're going to feel about that. Katie, you mentioned something like Summer of Soul being on Hulu. A big difference being, you know, that movie and most of Hulu's film acquisitions, um, especially ones that get Oscar consideration, are acquired after the fact. There's not an implicit agreement between the filmmaker and the studio over how they're going to be seen. And these yeah. Netflix movies for this coming season are obviously either in the can or pretty close to completed. So it's a different calculus and one that I imagine they're gonna have a tricky time navigating.
1: Uh, yeah, help me remember what are the like big kahuna Netflix filmmakers coming up this year who we oh think are gonna pitch a fit.
5: I need to get the Joe Reed sheet up. <laughs> I know, <that's>
1: what <laughs> I was, so I was just about to pull up myself. Um, well as you do your research, I was just reading the the Times article about this Netflix thing. I had forgotten that HBO Max has an ad tier two. So now I'm wondering about like how people watched Dune and then got ads for pizza rolls uh, in in opportune (laughs) moments. Like, I'm sure that was terrible for everybody.
5: I love the pizza rolls. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, this, this is a tough conversation, I think.
3: I think Dune is a good example, Katie, because that's a similar situation where the filmmaker didn't sign on for that format and that release plan. So we heard how unhappy lots of filmmakers were about that. So it does feel like these filmmakers with the Netflix films may have something to say about it this time around.
5: Yeah, it's like, how is Guillermo del Toro, who has Pinocchio, going to feel about it? David Fincher has The Killer, which, has Michael Fassbender Tilda us, Witten could be this year. And David Fincher's had a long relationship with Netflix. Um,
1: he does seem like the one who's going to be
5: serious. <laughs> he can be particular, that David Fincher. <laughs> <laughs> we love him for it. Uh, and Netflix has to this moment as well. Um but yeah that that I, I just can't imagine those conversations aren't going to be difficult with some directors who Netflix has worked pretty hard to court and and bring into their tent.
3: I think also The Bomb Back, right? Is supposed to come out yep, on Netflix and and there were rumors when his other film came, what is his other the film? The Meyerowitz Stories? Yeah, there were rumors, right, that he wasn't so keen on Mm -hmm. on being
1: on Netflix. I think he did interviews about it. Like I think he said it himself.
3: But now he keeps working with them, so I'm sure it's going fine. But (laughs) this is sort of another twist in that story, so that'll be interesting.
5: Yeah, I mean, the other side of this remains, and we've talked about Apple really investing more in their prestige film slate, but Netflix, as of today, is still making significant investments in this space and in these filmmakers, as most studios are not. And so that's another interesting ten- wrinkle in this uh, that we've been talking about for a couple weeks now is what does that strategy look like going forward? And this adds another dimension to it of these movies aren't even going to be watched necessarily in the same way.
1: Yeah, and especially with people actually going to movie theaters, um, not just for the Top Guns of the world, but as we were talking about last week, everything everywhere all at once. I can imagine that if you're a filmmaker who wants to make something ambitious and weird um, that felt like it was impossible two years ago, that might feel like a more appealing route than before.
5: Yeah. I just don't know what Power of the Dog looks like with an, <laughs> an ad break after the after the barn scene. I just <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think the their missed opportunity here is is product
2: placement, you know. Well, Phil comes back with a, bat, you know, some new chaps in a Coles bag or <laughs> they're drinking Smart Water in Mank. I don't know, like just dude, go that route. Yeah, that, true. I think you I don't want an ad.
5: If you're listening Jane Campion. <laughs>
1: Well, looking toward award season more, there was another uh, bit of news that came last week. Um, And I don't know that we know what this means at all yet. But SAG is going to be—the SAG awards are leaving uh, their deal with TBS and TNT that they've had for a long time. And I believe in the statement they said they were in discussions with Warner Brothers Discovery, which could mean HBO. It could mean—I don't like—I honestly have lost track of how many networks are owned by that conglomerate at this point. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I think— the thing that I immediately thought of was, uh, is this them trying to go for the Golden Globes, which is something we said last year, too. Um, David, you wrote about this for us when the news broke last week. Did you get any clarity on what this might mean?
5: Not exactly. Uh, I was able to confirm via the Warner side what, uh, that they are not going to TNT-TBS anymore. This coincided with everything that's been going on at Warner Discovery and reports of them cutting scripted programming. This doesn't necessarily fall into that, but it could be a part of a broader strategy going forward and and rethinking some of the priorities and traditions of those networks. So it's hard to tell exactly where it stemmed from, but yeah, to your point, Katie, there is this big opening that wasn't quite filled last year. The Critics' Choice Awards were very vocal about wanting to get a big network slot. They didn't quite get that. In my reporting on that, the, the push was for CBS and it didn't happen, or at least that was what... Those observing said it needed to get to get to that status. And I don't really know where the Golden Globes are this year in terms of network visibility. It doesn't feel like they've recovered in any way from last year's skip. So that opening remains and there's an opportunity here. It's just unclear how in demand the SAG Awards are. I think that's the big open question.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask if it, if an award show feels like a hot property for someone to acquire at right. this point, particularly mm-hmm. for like an organization, like you said, David, that's trying to just cut superfluous things. But then, like, the SAG Awards probably don't cost as much as CNN Plus. <laughs> they certainly don't cost <laughs> as much as CNN Plus or some other you know show they're not renewing. So maybe it's a, um, you know, if it's a play into live events, which I think some of these streaming services have struggled to get into, maybe that's part of it?
5: Definitely possible. There's definitely, I think, an opportunity there and I don't think that it should be they should be slept on as a potential strong asset for a network or a studio or whoever decides to take it on. They will have a home. I'm confident of that.
1: Yeah. And I think I think a healthier award system ecosystem is one with like more prominent events, like whether or not that's the Golden Globe. So I think you want the SAGs to exist in some way. The thing we talk about with the Emmys kind of amongst ourselves is that there's no like precursors, there's no stopover events on the way toward the Emmys. It's just like nothing, nothing, nothing. Boom, Emmys. And you don't want to lose that for the Oscars too. All right, one last bit of awards news, taking us to New York City, to the stage, uh, and to our uh, esteemed Broadway correspondent, Richard Lawson. Um, Richard is one of us who just sees Broadway regularly. Um, The Tony Award nominations came out on Monday, and honestly, like, I recognize plenty of names. I'm aware of the buzz around some of these shows. I know that A Strange Loop is a show that a lot of people were talking about, and it led the nominations. Uh, But what else, what other meaning should I take from these, Richard?
2: Well, yeah, Strange Loop had the most nominations of anything. It won a Pulitzer when it was off-Broadway, so there was some sense of fate accompli about this show being received so well on Broadway because it was very well tested out. Off, uh, much like Rent, many years ago. So that's exciting. It's exciting for Michael R. Jackson, who wrote the, wrote the whole show, and the performers who were nominated. And, you know, elsewhere, you have the kind of hmm, of MJ, the Michael Jackson musical, getting a ton of nominations.
1: The fact that there's a Michael Jackson musical and then Michael R. Jackson, a completely separate person, like that is just weird, completely. right? Can we just say that out loud?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, in in one year. You know, and you have, as has been tradition in the past 15 or so years, lots of big celebrities nominated, like Sam Rockwell, um, who's nominated for American Buffalo, Mary Louise Parker's in there, Ruth Nega, Billy Crystal, Hugh Jackman. So that's all, I'll expect Alfie Allen from a, Game of Thrones is nominated for Featured Actor in a Play for Hangman, which is Martin McDonough's play. So it feels starry. You know, it feels Jesse Williams from Take Me Out. And that's exciting. But I think the big thing is which stars are not in that lineup. Mm. The biggest one being Beanie Feldstein, who did not get a nomination for Funny Girl. Funny Girl was almost entirely blanked in nominations. The actor Jared Grimes did get a Featured Actor nomination for it. But it otherwise really didn't show up. Um, neither did Sarah Jessica Parker or Matthew Broderick for Plaza Suite. Neither did Deborah Messing for Birthday Candles. So there were some big star turns uh, this spring that did not uh, pan out as maybe we had thought they would, especially in Funny Girls' case.
1: That's something that the Tonys uh, can do from time to time, right? Because so often you get like, I'm a giant star. I will succeed on Broadway. And the theater community is like, nope, this is still belongs to us. Like, there's There's a push-pull there every year, I think.
2: There is, yeah. And there are certain instances, like, I remember the one that most angered people years ago was, uh, there was a production of View from the Bridge um, that was, Scarlett Johansson won a Tony for it. Um, And she was nominated alongside her co-star Jessica Hecht, who has more of a sort of theater background, and she's excellent in that, she was excellent in that show. And everyone thought that, you know, grumble, grumble, why did the big celebrity win? And then shortly thereafter, Catherine Zeta-Jones won for A Little Night Music when a lot of people felt that that performance was somewhat lackluster. I I think she was good in it. But, but there has been this debate about, like, why can these big stars just parachute into our industry and gobble up all these awards and then leave? Some celebrities like Jake Gyllenhaal or whoever return to the theater over and over again. Hugh Jackman is one of those people. So there's never any issue with Hugh Jackman. It's more these other people who just beam in from elsewhere for one show. So maybe that was part of the sentiment about Funny Girl and Debra Messing and um, SJP to some extent. But um, I think also Funny Girl in particular just was not reviewed well. And unfortunately, a lot of the negative reviews fell on Beanie Feldstein's shoulders. So that was probably a tough thing. I think that's tough for that show, which financially... It had probably a pretty good advance, but unlike the movie industry, which does rely financially somewhat on a little Oscar bump, the to- the Tonys really do affect the theater industry to a great deal. And to the extent that if a show doesn't get any Tony nominations, it often will close the following week or Ooh. announce a closing. It's kind of make or break in, in a lot of occasions. So we'll have to see what happens with... Um, with Funny Girl in that regard. But, you know, it's a good list of nominees. Um, I haven't seen everything by any means, but uh, the stuff I saw has been well represented. And I, again, want to stress, if you were considering a trip to New York and you are looking for something to see and you're not bringing small children or otherwise sensitive people um, because it is a pretty racy show, A Strange Loop is fantastic. And um, special shout out to an old friend named James Jackson who was in the ensemble.
1: Uh, I saw the very unracy music man when I was in New York last week. And uh, had a great time and I love just marveling at like Hugh Jackman, the true greatest showman of our time, um, whose talents on on stage are I think a little bit different from what they are on screen, but still really effective. Um so I was just I was just, just kind of grateful to get that firsthand exposure to massive star power. Yeah. And it's it's fun. Like I haven't seen the other actors nominated in that category. I'm imagining the lead actor from A Strange Loop is doing a very different kind of performance. And actually, Billy Crystal in his show, which I haven't seen either, might be somewhat similar, speaking of fellow Oscar hosts. But I'm, uh, you know, excited to watch him at an awards show, as I always am, when the Tonys air in June.
2: Yeah, yeah. the Hugh Jackman of it all. I didn't love The Music Man, but I think that it's certainly like that kind of mega star War just definitely has its place on broadway you know i think people would be sad if it left um but you know it has to be used appropriately and i think sparingly
1: well also um, he's overshown by jane howdy Show, the biggest star in the world who's amazing in the, in her nominated role too
2: Exactly. Um, one other interesting Tony's thing I wanted to point out before we stop boring people about theater uh, <laughs> is uh, Deirdre O'Connell, a great actress, does a lot of theater in New York. Uh, she's in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. She plays Tom Wilkinson's beleaguered wife in one scene. Um, she's been on television. She's great. She is nominated for Best Actress in a play for a play called Dana H., which is really excellent uh, play by Lucas Nath, who had Doll's House Part Two. A few years ago, that was great with Laurie Metcalf. Anyway, and you talked uh, about uh, this on the O'Connell.
1: show. You talked, you've talked about *A Little Gold Men* at some point uh, a couple months ago. If people remember that,
2: right? So, if people don't remember, Deirdre O'Connell is nominated for Best Actress in Play for something that she lip syncs entirely. She doesn't speak out loud once in the play. She's lip syncing to a recording of the playwright's mother. It's nonetheless an incredible performance, and I'm very happy to see it nominated. And I think it sets a really interesting precedent for what kind of things can be nominated in the future. I think especially a lot of deaf actors being brought into the Broadway fold, and sometimes they have people speaking out loud for them. Sometimes it's just sign language. So I think it'll be interesting now that there is this essentially wordless, but also kind of not wordless performance nominated. I mean, people have been nominated for not saying anything out loud before, but this feels different. So I think it's a really cool thing to look at. I don't think she'll win, but it's great that they recognized it anyway.
1: And Richard, I think we're going to have, you're going to bring in some fellow Broadway experts uh, on the show and a little bit closer to the Tonys for a full preview so people can look forward to more where this came from.
2: Yeah, we'll do a special Tonys episode, um, and uh, we'll have definitely Chris Murphy and maybe some other people just to break all these nominees down and um, remind you that theater still matters, even though all we talk about is movies and TV. <laughs>
1: Look, if you want awards, these are awards coming in the middle of summer. What more can we offer you people?
2: And it's part of the EGOT, so you yeah. gotta you gotta you gotta make that stop on the tour at some point.
1: Yeah, by the time you do the special, you have to tell us who's likely the EGOT from this because the Tonys the hardest one. So if anyone's uh, really going to get their chance, this might be the year.
2: And it's one that Kate Winslet could do. Absolutely. If she did a play and it was even halfway decent, she would get the Tony and she'd have an EGOT. But that has not happened yet for reasons I can't. I mean, maybe she doesn't want to do theater, but.
0: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go.
1: Okay, now let's look a little bit closer in the future than the Tony Awards, which is Top Gun. It is premiering at Cannes next week. Whether or not Tom Cruise will arrive on the cross set on a parachute or a fighter jet or God knows what else uh, yet to be determined. Um, But Richard, you've seen it. You're allowed to talk Mm -hmm. about it. The embargo is a little unclear to me, but we can talk about it a little bit.
2: If you're listening past 9 a.m. on Thursday, the, when this episode drops, the embargo's up. So <laughs> for you early birds, we might be spoiling something. But yeah, it's uh, it had gotten really good notices from some early test screenings, which, you know, I, we have to take with a grain of salt because a specific kind of effusive person is invited to those and encouraged mm-hmm. to tweet effusively. I believe I saw someone say that it was going to get a Best Picture nomination, yep, which um, I don't think is going to happen. <laughs> uh, Joseph Kaczynski, the director, does a good job, but he does not quite have Tony's scott's maximalist touch not even maximalist that's not really a word but like whatever tony scott's like arch style is is aped in this one but uh, not quite replicated though they try very hard i mean there's a lot of repetition of imagery and scenes i mean they switch beach volleyball for beach football in this one and the the motorcycle scene with tom cruise and the love interest is not set to take my breath away but it's there it's not it's also not set to the lady gaga song just by the way
1: um what a missed opportunity there
2: Mm. It, the Lady Gaga song kicks in when it needs to kick in, and, and it's fine, and it plays over enough of the movie that it is eligible for Oscars. I think they made certain of that. But what is constant, and the movie takes great pains to remind you, is Tom Cruise. (laughs) This is a movie that is as much about Maverick and his return to Top Gun flight school as it is about Tom Cruise and his not return to anything because he's maintained his movie stardom over the years, despite some baubles here and there. And it is just like, nope, he is one for the ages. He cannot be replaced by a young upstart, though they may try, to the extent to which there is... there's a sort of metaphor of an old aircraft that is basically standing for Tom Cruise being like, don't count this old bird out. Um, And yet somehow it's not creepy and weird. And I think about other Vanity Project star turns that kind of get a little embarrassing. This one avoids that somehow. It's a cheesy movie. It's absolute military propaganda, probably irresponsibly so. And yet um, Tom Cruise, yet again, makes a case for himself.
1: Rebecca, do you think that he's going to be the talk of Cannes when this premieres next week?
3: I can't imagine how he won't. I'm going to see it there. And I'm really excited to see it in that theater with that sort of grand ceremony around it. And I hope he does parachute in. Um, But, you know, he is just he's a movie star and he delivers that that sort of uh, grand, big ceremony around himself every time. So, I, you know, it does seem a little random for Cannes, but there always is a big studio movie that feels a little random, and I think this is a great choice because it will benefit from that splashy premiere.
1: I mean, I'm sure there are other movie stars who have not had movies that came out in the past two years, but, like, Tom Cruise's movies, like, this was held for a long time. The Mission Impossible franchise was, like, shooting during COVID, like, all kinds of stuff happened there. But there does seem to be this kind of, like, and now we can breathe movies are back thing about Tom Cruise having a huge movie come out again, even though he's in his 50s and, like, sort of not the movie star he used to be, but sort of is. He has an, an incredible power like that.
2: Yeah, and, and it's in a movie that is attempting not to remind you of his grandeur, but also the grandeur of the big screen experience. I saw the screening on IMAX. Rebecca, when you see it in Cannes, it'll probably be at the Lumiere, which is a huge screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, I think, encouraging that sort of spectacle. And Tom Cruise has been a part of that spectacle for 40 years, basically. So um, they really go hand in hand. I mean, Tom Cruise started acting, what, seven, not even seven years after the so-called advent of the blockbuster, you know, like he has been there basically the entire time. And Mm -hmm. um, this movie is a pretty effective propaganda tool to remind you of that. Um, While, you know, the younger actors like Miles Teller and Glenn Powell and uh, a few others do a good job of just basically looking up in awe (laughs) or down (laughs) in awe in some cases um, (laughs) at this guy who, you know, is given many opportunities to show them how it's done.
3: I'm relieved to hear you talk about the tweets about it being an Oscar best picture contender because I remember seeing those and I was just <laughs> out of CinemaCon. And I'm like, no, no, like, we when are we going to stop doing this, guys? Like, this can't happen every year. I do think Gaga, obviously, with that song, will be part of the conversation. I love having her as part of Oscar season, so I'm excited for that. But it's just like, calm down. I'm so worried that's going to happen at, at Cannes as well because it's that same sort of you know, you get on these weird highs seeing these movies at these beautiful theaters and early like that, and I'm like, just calm down, people.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a it, it's it's a well made movie, but it's not. I don't think. Um... I don't think it has Best Picture. It's not Mad Max Fury Road, which was also a Mm Cannes premiere that went on to Best Picture. It was an action movie continuation of a franchise. This is a different thing. It is almost entirely a nostalgia project. And then Tom Cruise's manager and publicist yelling at you for two hours about how great their client is.
1: (laughs) Um. (laughs) Um, David, I'm wondering if you're in the same position as me where, like, I don't have a ton of nostalgia around Top Gun. Like, I've seen it. It, I don't have a lot of feelings about one way or another. But I'm excited for this movie and the, the size and the scope of it and the potential for it to be such a big unifying spectacle that isn't a Marvel movie even though it's a franchise are are you following me on any of this
5: yeah to an extent. <laughs> I, I, hate, I hate that Oscar, but I think I wrote an article last year mid-Can. It was one of the first things we worked on together, Katie, about <laughs> the limits of Can Oscar buzz yeah. because at Can, it can get particularly ridiculous. And I was getting emails about like Annette's Oscar odds skyrocketing. And that, I was yes, just like, what? that was
1: where I really felt like I was, I was crazy. Like, no,
5: this cannot be happening. <laughs> However, yes, I completely agree. And I think Can at its best. Has the the drive my cars and and this and showcases a lot of the best in the year of the year in world cinema, and then has a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or you know a bigger yeah. starrier movie that gets everybody excited and has that long box office tail uh, that the industry needs and that I think makes everyone happy about movies. So yeah, that's that's absolutely something I'm hoping for, and it feels like a nice return to that balance for Can for sure.
2: The box office question is interesting with Top Gun. Obviously, there's going to be a a very willing audience of people, I don't know, over 35, maybe, who have deep affection for the original and Mm want to see this. And so I think that'll mean, hopefully, a good first weekend. But I don't know beyond that. If the appeal is really there, it is an older guy flying around in planes <laughs> for two hours. You know, I, uh, I it's it's exciting. Yeah, it looks great, but I, I don't know. I, I think I have this weird suspicion, and I'm often proven wrong about this. That it could be like actually kind of a huge flop. So we'll see. I mean, can will help for basically the people who are already going to see it. Yeah.
1: But thank God that uh, Boss Norman's Elvis is guaranteed box office gold. And, uh, gonna... <laughs> I'm I'm holding out a lot of hope for Elvis. I would love like a one-two punch of Top Gun and Elvis at Cannes, but um, only time will tell.
2: Only time will tell. <laughs> yeah, and there's, at Cannes, they're 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 saving Elvis for the second week. I think they wanted to put a big tent pole in the in the middle of the festival rather than have it be front loaded.
1: I mean, at some festivals, if you premiere late, that's a really not a strong sign. Is is it different for Cannes?
2: It's different at Cannes. I mean, the Kelly Reichardt film is premiering the last day. Like, Cannes likes to keep you there. (laughs) You know, they don't don't want people leaving early.
1: I'm sorry that you have to stay in this beautiful French seaside town for longer, Richard. We'll make it up to you somehow.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'll suffer through it.
1: Okay, let's return to our own houses and the television that, as we keep telling you, is everywhere uh, and there is so much of it to watch. Um, But I did want to go back and talk about The Staircase again because we recorded last week's episode on a Monday and then I flew to New York and I saw, Richard, you in person on Tuesday. And you're like, oh, wait, I like The Staircase a lot now. And I was like, wait, (laughs) we talked yesterday and you were not (laughs) that hot on it. And you filed this pretty rave review. And you're not the only one of us who I think watched a little bit of it, wasn't sure about it and really got sold on it. So what, what, what is your update to your take on the staircase from last week?
2: Well, I think when we talked about it, I had just watched the second episode, and there is this horrible stair accident thing, or an imagination of what might have happened to Kathleen Peterson, and I was like, Ugh, I don't know, this feels very like, why are we watching this? And then I watched, you know, three, four more episodes, and I was like, oh, that was deliberate. The show, Antonio Campos, who created the show, is really. Using scenes like that to get you into a headspace where you start thinking not just about this particular family, this particular incident, be it a crime or not, and actually trying to get you to think about true crime as a genre, as an interest, not just in TV form but film and podcasts and books and whatever else. It's really turning inward on itself, meta, investigating its own entity. and And David had talked about how Campos was fascinated with the trial long before this project came along, and and. And I think so he's kind of investigating his own things while while also casting a somewhat critical eye on us fans um, of these things. So uh, I, it, it it turned into this kind of, for me, this true crime series that I, in the review, I'm like, I, in some ways, I kind of hope it's the last because it mm. issues a definitive statement. I mean, I haven't finished the series yet, but.
1: It's also definitely not the last, unfortunately. You, did, you didn't have no, the power no, to. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no. The other one I mean, the you could contrast
2: it to watching Candy or something and you're like, OK, like that is just doing the kind of more rotely, where the staircase as it goes, develops into something really interesting, especially when the filmmakers of the documentary start to become
5: characters.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about Candy in a minute. But David, you also got really won over by the staircase, right?
5: Yeah, um, I would just echo everything Richard said. The other interesting comparison between this and Candy, and this isn't criticism of Candy over Staircase, but Candy's episodes run, I'd say about 20 minutes shorter on average than The Staircase. And at first, because I started these two, because I worked on first looks for both of them pretty simultaneously, I was very happy for the Candy brevity. But as I got deeper into The Staircase, I actually came to really appreciate each episode packing it in um, because one, no character gets the short shrift, it feels like. And that's really tough to do in a series of this scope and a series with so much going on, um, with multiple timelines, with this reenactment uh, structure, with the fact of the documentarians becoming characters and and this whole meta component um, be taking up more and more real estate. Um, but you have, you know, Parker Posey's Free to Black it feels like has been Kind of social media breakout of the series, mainly for her memeable quotes and scenes. But the screenshots do
1: stand out on my. The on screenshots Twitter
5: stand reads. out. The 10-second clips stand out. But she's also really, really good, and and feels completely. She's completely embodying uh, this woman who has a much more complicated backstory than you might know from watching the show. But I think it comes through in her performance and these moments where she gets to breathe in it a little bit. And Tony Collette particularly in the fourth episode, which I believe is airing today, the day this episode drops, has a pretty incredible scene with Colin Firth where they're just both at the top of their game, which precedes another theory on how she may have died, a visualization of that theory. Uh, and it's really, again, hard to watch, but the performances in that that one really pulled me in. And yeah, it's just, it it casts a spell over you because it is... Forcing you to watch it in a particular way and forcing you to ask questions about what you're watching and why you're watching it, why you're compelled by it. It sucks you in. And the last thing I would say is what I can't really talk about, which is the character that Juliette Binoche plays, um, which they are keeping a big spoiler. Um, but in this episode, I believe at the end, you, you know the character she's playing. Um, it adds another fascinating dimension to it the show digs deeper into from what I've seen and I imagine will dig even more deeply uh, beyond that.
1: I'm so puzzled by this spoiler thing because A, it's real and you can Google it and B, Mm -hmm. like, she shows up in the first episode, she's French, and then in the second episode you meet these French documentarians you're like, (laughs) I don't think he met a different French. I mean, she's not with those French documentarians. I'm like, I I live in Durham, there are people from other countries here, but like, I I don't know, the pieces (laughs) seem to add up pretty clearly, but okay.
2: No comment. (laughs) (laughs) I had it in my review and then was asked to take it out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Way to toe the line, Richard. Um, Rebecca, did you have any staircase updates from last week? Richard and David are selling me on on
3: keeping going, honestly, because I watched three and I still feel the same I did last time we talked about this. And I think for me, hearing them say, yes, it's a hard watch, but it's really trying to investigate our obsession with these makes me more interested in, in continuing to watch it. I did almost fall down my stairs the other day. and had like I know in my house and it had a weird flashback to that scene in season two. So I feel like maybe I just need a a little break and then to go back to this one. But I, I I'm also more fascinated by the way, like our experiences are affecting the way we experience these other true crime series because they're just all piled on top of each other like this because I do agree. it, It does color the way you see the candy or under the banner of heaven and and the choices that were made in those series as well. So I don't know. I wish they were more spaced out, but I will, I will keep going because you guys have convinced me it's worth it.
1: They really are so much in conversation with each other. And we talked about this, Richard, on the Soul watching season we did on all the tech scam shows, which were airing at the same time. I don't know why they decided that putting these all in bunches, I guess it's kind of a coincidence in some ways, but you cannot help but draw links between them. Like David and Rebecca, I was, I told you yesterday, I was watching the staircase, or no, I was watching Candy and realized that the husband of Betty, the character played by Melanie Linsky, who gets murdered on that show, is named Alan, which is also the name of the character <laughs> on under the banner of heaven who gets murdered. <laughs> Which is just a weird coincidence, but again... Ladies
3: don't marry an
1: (laughs) Allen. No! They might not kill you, but they're not going to be that helpful to you if somebody's (laughs) out to get you.
5: And they both spell it with two L's. I know. Which is not the typical spelling. Yeah,
1: A-L-L-E-N, I think. Uh, I think
5: one is A-N, A-N and one is okay. E-N. Okay,
1: all right. Not quite exactly. The last thing I want to say on the staircase, and maybe it does lead, does lead into Candy, and this might be just a, a personal hangup because, again, I live in Durham, but I'm just waiting for it to feel like it's in a place, mm-hmm. especially because Michael Peterson, in those first two episodes, is like, they're out to get me. As soon as the cops arrived at my house, they suspected me. They don't like me because I was running for office. And, like, I don't know a lot about the political world of this city from 20 years ago. I didn't live here then, and I would like to learn it. And I watched the first episode of the documentary, and it it doesn't really get that much more into it. So maybe that's just not an inherent part of the story. But I think Candy does have a little bit more of a sense of place. It feels a little bit kind of hermetically sealed, like all they ever do is go to this one church. And Under the Banner of Heaven certainly does, because it's set within this specific community. And I don't know, that might just be more of a traditional and true crime thing that I'm looking for, you know, like murder in the South. But I, I do feel like I'm missing it um, at the very least, just because I want to hear them like mention intersections that I know or something like that. Yeah.
5: I totally agree with you. I, I think that, and I think that that is one of the big things for me that I struggled with in those first few episodes was, I do think with a true crime show, you really want to feel planted in that place, and mm-hmm. both Candy and Under the Banner of Heaven, I think, do a really good job of that. I, I would argue in in
2: the staircase's defense that that placelessness is kind of part of the point in that you lose all context the more obsessed you become with these stories you know Mm. and and yes in a lot of the stories the place is part of the, the the central character of the story but i think in this we are just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this family's life after the trial happens in the staircase and everything with that ensues Campo still keeps going back to before the, the death and because he's not yep. done looping the past with the present with the future. And I think that losing a bit of Durham in that is maybe on purpose, although I will say, Katie, there is a little bit more with the city's or his political stuff a little bit later.
1: All right. I will look forward to that.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, let's talk about Candy, since it is airing uh, this week as we say this. It's got this fast-standing schedule where it's uh, airing five nights in a row. It will conclude on Friday the 13th, um, which, David, you explained to me is very significant to the show. Um, so we probably mm-hmm. shouldn't get into much detail. I think people should discover it as they go along. And, David, you and I are going to have a longer conversation about it next week on Still Watching. But in general, I mean, maybe, David, to start with you, since you did the first look on it and watched the whole thing, um, how do you feel it It works when we're looking at it in conversation with these with these other murder shows?
5: The trick of this show, the the challenge of it, and it was reflected in number of reviews. Is and I don't want to spoil anything, but I do think that in the five episodes you get, you do end in a place where it's like, what was the point of what I was watching? And I've I've spoken with Robin Veith, the co-creator and showrunner, as well as Jessica Biel, a couple times, and uh, I think they have really strong, clear ideas about making a show about female rage and about paralleling two women's stories who, the stories of two women who were very different, led very different lives, had very different personalities, were at different levels of popularity, but who both maybe had similar things brewing inside of them. How effective the show is at delineating that, at exploring that and drawing that out over five episodes uh, seems to be up for debate to some extent, but I do think that the show has really strong performances, especially I think Millie Linsky, who's just on the podcast, uh, mm-hmm. is really excellent um, and totally different from Yellow jackets and just leans into the prickly parts of Betty Gore in a way that I appreciated. I know others have found maybe it a bit too much uh, in, the, in the rendering of that character. Um, but I think that that was what made it work for me was understanding the life of a woman who a lot of people didn't care to understand or want to understand. So that was the parts of it I liked a lot. I think it starts really strong. Um, the finale, which airs Friday. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it morphs into a kind of courtroom drama in a way that I wasn't totally sold by necessarily. And that felt surprising given the fact that it does a lot of formally and structurally interesting things with the first couple episodes.
1: Rebecca, where'd you land on Candy.
3: I watched the whole thing as well. I agree with David. The performances are really good. I I thought Pablo Schreiber is also very good and and strong as one as the husband of Betty and who has the affair with Candy. So he also delivers a really good performance. And I I did really like the first episode and I moderated um a panel with them actually yesterday at the premiere and what I found interesting is that a lot of them the actors and Robin They don't have a clear answer for what happened. We don't, we'll never really know. Two women went into that room, one came out, right? And so for even them, except Melanie, who seems very sure (laughs) about what happened to Betty, but the rest of them don't know and have some sympathy for Candy. And I think they're trying to sort of explore how complicated that is with that show. And I felt that watching it as well. But I think maybe that's why it doesn't feel almost as captivating because they seem to also be sort of grappling with this um, story and the answers. So I definitely think it's worth a watch. And again, it's just impossible not to compare it to the other shows that are out right now.
5: You know, one really interesting element uh, to add to what you were saying, Rebecca, is that both Candy and The Staircase have this unknowability at their center. Mm -hmm. And where The Staircase answers that by essentially excavating every possible theory and and the ideas around them and the theories around them the candy approach is to and I don't think it's too big of a spoiler to, to essentially tell candy story mm-hmm. tell you that they're telling candy story so as not to give it the sheen of objectivity it's a it's an intently subjective telling but it doesn't have that sense of complexity that you get from mm-hmm. the staircase. Because this is much more of a specific kind of character study, it's a different approach, and I, I don't, I don't know if it, in the end, it felt as satisfying for me or as thorny and and with as much to chew on.
1: Richard, have you seen any of Candy?
5: Yeah, I've
2: seen the first two episodes. I do think about what the show would have been with Elizabeth Moss, uh, who was supposed to play the Beale role, and. Yeah, but I really I like her
1: in that role as the like um the golden girl thing, you know, being being the queen bee of the church social social circle. I feel like that suits her really well.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I'm probably being unfair in the way that I'm assessing her performance and and a lot of the other performances where it just feels like it's glamorous hollywood people putting on bad wigs you know and, the wigs and are that's terrible in, though like truly and you know and then you have raul spars a big theater guy like doing the southern accent as a pastor and it, it feels a little more cosplay than have other recent series that are portraying real people maybe that develops as the series goes i don't know how i mean i think it's interesting that they're it's airing all in one week i think that's kind of a cool idea so i don't know i i I think I'm just a, I've reached a saturation point And unfortunately, like the staircase felt like a culmination of all that. And, and now it's hard for me to get reengaged with something else. But it's definitely a sensational, very strange story with lots of potential truths behind it. So if that's to your fancy, then it, it delivers on that front.
1: You know, I'm looking ahead and trying to see like what the next true crime series is going to be. Like I'm sure we're not at the end of the the trend, but because, you know, Emmy qualif- any Emmy qualifying ends at the end of this month. Like I think these are the last ones we're going to have for a while. So, in some ways maybe Richard you're going to get your wish or at least get a little bit more of a break um from what what right now feels like a really overwhelming trend.
3: Well, we didn't mention that there's also another version of this candy story coming out this year <laughs> in the That fall, is nuts. To which actually. is like Kind of insane with Elizabeth Olsen starring as Candy. So for those to be both coming out in the same year is just so wild to me. Yeah,
1: yeah. and uh, and Jesse Plemons. But we 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 will go wherever Jesse Plemons goes. So We yeah, will. Lily so. Rabe
5: as Betty Gore is interesting because a big part of that courtroom, the big part of the way that she was depicted in the courtroom, and this isn't in the show too much, was about her size and shaming her. There was a lot of body shaming, and Lily Rabe is not... Of that size. Are you so are I you putting be, us
1: on Fat Suit Watch? Is that what you're trying to say? Mm-hmm.
5: I am putting you on Fat Suit Watch. Yes, <laughs> and coming. and also just is this going to be the to Richard's point even more of a Hollywoody version of the mm. story?
1: Um, I will say we do have Only Murders in the Building coming in June, but I don't count that as part of the. It's it's it's. I guess it's related to the true crime trend because of the podcast, but uh, it feels like an entirely different breed. And maybe I'll have no bad
5: words speak. I'll have no bad words spoken of Only Murders mm-hmm. in the Building.
1: Well, let's mention one more new show back over to Apple TV. I have not watched any of The Essex Serpent yet, but I know some of us have. And seeing Tom Hiddleston and Claire Danes together, uh, is there murder in this one? There's a creature. Is there a murder on The Essex Serpent? Can someone there's answer a, me this? There's a, there's a dead white female. Okay. Yeah. All right. Dead women. That is
5: a, my, a mysterious death. <laughs>
1: Accent. Did not see that coming.
5: I'm, I'm putting my best Claire Danes hat on right now. I'm
1: um, so proud of you. Um, Rebecca, What? <laughs> how are you feeling about Essex Serpent?
3: I really liked the first episode. I'm definitely going to keep going. I think watching those two perform something different from the roles they've kind of been known for, as David mentioned in his piece, is really, really enjoyable. And I think the show is beautifully shot and honestly feels refreshing after getting through all these true crime stories lately.
1: So, I I really like it so far. David, you did the first look piece and I feel like you got a lot of a lot of good insight from both of them about like leaping into the unknown to make the show.
5: Yeah, they were they were great uh, to talk to about this. I love this book, uh, which is da- adapted from the novel by Sarah Perry. I would say definitely read the book if you're interested in the show as a companion piece, whether you read it before or after. I do think it's inevitably Stronger and just very singular, um, but I, I really appreciated the adaptation. It felt very spirited and faithful, and I think I missed Claire Danes on TV, and I think she is really terrific in this, and particularly because of the arc of the character. And I spoke to her a lot about this for the for for a feature. You really see her. Claire Danes come into her own, as you see the character come into her own, because this was the first big new role she's taken on in over a decade since uh, Carrie Matheson and Homeland was the main thing she did for so many years. Um, and it's really exciting to watch her just completely take ownership of the part and play opposite Tom Hiddleston in scenes that are really fresh and dynamic. Yeah, those are the, those. are that's what I'll say about it for now. I don't want to say too much, um, but it's. I thought it was really a nicely done take on the book.
1: Does it feel well in, in tune with the Apple brand identity that we've been seeing emerge uh, really in the past couple months as they've been having these uh, pretty successful shows?
5: I don't think so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is it a, a good expansion,
5: I guess? Uh, yeah, I, it's it doesn't... F- well, I don't know how to say what is an Apple show, but it feels like a very handsomely, smartly mounted costume drama uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, it definitely has this turn of the century energy. And it's very much about ideas and clashing philosophies and the writing, which a lot of it, a lot of which comes from the book is really strong in that regard. But I don't want to give too much away about it. But it it doesn't have that necessarily that pace, that sense of really fast momentum. It's a nice costume watch, cozy... Drama to watch. I don't know. <laughs> I think
1: if you're like a a grown up who is subscribed to Apple because you want to watch Severance, like it's it's not inconceivable that you would switch over to something like that.
5: Yeah. I think I think to Rebecca's point. That was how I felt watching it cuz for everybody this is going to be one of the last watches of the season. We've had a lot of gore, we've had a lot of mystery and this is a mystery, but it's it's in a very different key and it it was a nice come down in a lot of ways where you get to see two really good actors dig into roles that uh where there's a lot of room to play.
2: I I just in terms of the Claire Danes of it all at the beginning of the first episode something sad happens or well sort of complicatedly sad. Uh and uh, Claire Danes' character her child says, "Oh, you're if you're sad, you're not crying." And it got me thinking about Claire Danes' famous cry, mm-hmm. at, you know, the crumple face kind of thing and yes. I was like, "Oh, so maybe she like doesn't want to do that anymore and then no by the end of the first episode oh there oh there's crumple crack there's (laughs) she can't stay away from it but uh it's fun seeing her after so many years in homeland doing something else that is very far afield from that so yeah that alone i think is worth worth checking it out
1: well, that does it for this week's show. Uh, some of us will be back next week. Some of us will be in France, although you will hear from Richard and Rebecca with a can preview um, on next week's show. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Find us writing about much of what we talked about today, including some um, lead-up can coverage and a lot of staircase coverage, etc. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen or on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And David.
5: David Canfield 97.
1: You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917-563-4588. If there are specific things you want to hear about from can, uh let us know. We can make uh, Richard and Rebecca do them, maybe. We'll see.
2: This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of the summer we hope to have goes to Katie Rich.
1: Nothing, nothing, nothing. Boom, Emmys.
0: Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.